Hello and welcome to At The Source. I'm Alex and this is Karis. This is a podcast about food stories. We love talking about food and eating it. And now we're on a mission to record and share interesting food stories from people all over the UK and beyond. Join us as we explore food in all its glory. Welcome to At The Source. We're back at Abergavenny Food Festival for the second year on the trot and this morning we're talking to film scholar turned cook Alyssa Timoshkina. Alyssa came to the UK in 1999 from Russia to study, gaining a PhD in film history. She went on to lecture and publish papers on the subject of Russian and European cinema and worked as a curator and coordinator of film festivals in London. But like many of our guests, Alyssa's love of food was always there on the sidelines waiting to take over. Her passion saw her start a cinema supper club called Kino Vino, which offers film screenings and sit-down dinners with unique menus inspired by the films. It's now one of London's most original projects and is featured in British Vogue, Olive Magazine, Vice, The Curious Pair, The Telegraph and on BBC Radio 4's food programme. Alyssa has also recently released her first cookbook, Salt and Time, Stories from a Siberian Kitchen where she looks in-depth at the food culture of her homeland, which, of course, is why we wanted to chat to her. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you so much for joining us in our glamorous camper van recording studio. Thank you so much for having me. This is the best recording studio I've ever been to. <laughs> um, please don't put it as a benchmark. It's really not. <laughs> We've been so happy to use this this weekend because it's a quiet spot in a very busy festival. And when oh. we first said to the, the people that organised Abergavenny, you know, oh, we thought we might bring a camper van and they just laughed and then they made it happen for us. And, and it's been amazing, hasn't it? I love it. Yeah. So you're, you're very welcome to be here. <laughs> okay. So we have to start at the very beginning, yeah. which is where we always start. So what is your first memory of food? Such a great question. I think it's a trip that me and my mom and my grandparents took uh, to Sochi, which is a resort uh, town by the Black Sea in Russia when I was three, or maybe even younger. And I just have this really vivid but very kind of disjointed flashbacks to bits of that holiday and there were a few food moments there one of them being there was a place that made um, dumplings and they sold this um, kind of watered down honey drink um, and I was just obsessed with it and every day I had to like make my mom and my grandparents take me there to have that uh, honey thing um, and the other thing was because uh, my dad couldn't join us um, for breakfast my mom would have um very simple Soviet cookies called the Jubilee cookies or crackers. And my dad always used to have them with butter and like make kind of a sandwich out of it. So like two cookies with a bit of butter in the middle. And she would say, oh, every morning, oh, you, your dad sent you this cookie sandwich. And I would genuinely believe that my father oh, was sending so me those. That's very sweet. <laughs> and, oh. and I would eat those thinking my dad sent me them. Yeah. <laughs> Out of curiosity, and this is sort of not on the topic of your first memory of food, but... So beach resort towns in the UK, you walk along the beach and you might have ice cream or you might go to the chippy and have fish and chips. Yeah. What do you do in a resort town in Russia? Most, I mean, to be honest, I haven't been to many, but most of them are situated kind of in the southern part of Russia, obviously because of the climate and the proximity to the sea. And in that part of Russia, place like Abkhazia, which is um, technically a Caucasian region, but it's still part of Russia, uh, because of the ethnic Georgians and Abkhazians there, it's a very um, 
beautiful like kebabs and things. So it's okay. very almost Middle Eastern Georgian cuisine. There's, there's lots of, and they're called shashlik. Uh, so there's lots mm. of shashlichna, which is like little cafes outside with like plastic chairs. And there's lots of like fumes from the barbecue. And you get kebabs like that. Or, yeah, you get like simple caf- cafeterias with like... um they're called like dumpling cafeterias where you get like pelmeni dumplings or Ukrainian vareniki dumplings. I think I'm... That was kind of my... I haven't been for years. I think probably that holiday that I took when I was three was the first and the last one. Well, but... let us know when you're going back because we'll come with you because I'm totally down for beachside dumplings. <laughs> for me, I have a really savoury tooth. So to go to the beach and have an ice cream versus go to the beach and have a kebab <laughs> there is there is no question which one i'm going to i'm going to choose so Alyssa, did you grow up in a food loving family is that kind of where the passion came from for you i did yeah my um my mom is a great cook but so is my gran and also my great grandmother and we all at various points in my childhood we all lived together so I was pretty much um, raised by three women and fed by three women, which is such a luxury. Such an amazing thing to have that four generations in yeah. one, yeah, one place. Absolutely. It's been very, for me as a kid, I'm sure for maybe for my mom living with her parents and her grandmother was maybe not that much not fun. That fun. <laughs> but for me as a, you know, five-year-old, it was fantastic. Um, and my great-grandmother... Because in Russia or former Soviet Union, women tended to have children very young. So my mom had me when she was 20. So my great-grandmother was only in her early 70s when I was born. So mm. she was pretty much like my granny. And my real grandmother was like 45 or something. So, you know, there's the really strange kind of age groups. Um, so my great-grandmother was almost like a granny to me. And because she lived with us, she was there 24-7 with me. And she actually used to work as a cook. I mean, I wouldn't call her a chef because that sounds a bit too fancy. Uh, but she worked in various canteens and she did lots of baking. I think she was a trained pastry chef as well. Or she did some kind of a course. So she was really good at baking. Um, so in our home, there was always some kind of a cake or some buns or something. So there was a lot of dough that I grew up around. But funnily enough, that didn't make me a keen baker. I still get really anxious <laughs> making <laughs> dough because it's just, it doesn't look as effortless and beautiful as my great grandmother used to make it. So I just can't keep up on that. When you say that to your grandparents and you say, oh, and they go, you're not doing it right. And you go, well, I'm trying, I'm doing it like you've said. (laughs) And you go, it's not fair, you know, you've got 60 years experience. She goes, it's got nothing to do with that. What do you mean it's got nothing to do with that? So, yeah, I guess it's hard. You can never live up to that. Especially as a child, you have those very romanticised kind of memories and visions of it. And, yeah, the way I remember my great-granny working with dough is just, like, borderline witchcraft and magic so i would never be able to live up to that kind so, of expectation what was the f- best thing that she made that oh she made wanted? um she was jewish but because of the soviet well actually even before the soviet union her family were russian orthodox so i kind of lost the history of the family there a little bit so i don't know why or when they converted from judaism to russian christianity but um but even during the soviet union no one was allowed allowed to practice their religion openly or kind of be ethnically different there was no real kind of differentiation everyone was just uniform and soviet um so she cooked lots of jewish dishes but they in our family they were not really kind of openly celebrated as Jewish. So she mm. made the most delicious poppy seed 
buns, which mm. are rugula, um, which I only realized when I moved here and went to some, you know, called as green bacon. I was like, oh, that's the buns that my granny always made. Uh, so those poppy seed buns were just oh, so good. And me and my mom still think of them fondly because I just ate them by like bucket full of, <laughs> of those. Tell us a little bit about when you, so you came to the UK to study yeah. and actually not to study food. No, I was only 15. So I came to, um, just to a school to do my GCSEs and, um, my feeling always was that I want to um, live in the UK, which was probably partly influenced by my family. We were like obsessed with Britain for some reason. I don't know, films, literature, that kind of stuff. And um, because of the Soviet Union, obviously, you couldn't really travel widely. So again, there was a lot of kind of romanticized idea about Britain in my family. And finally, when there was a chance to send me abroad, it was almost a no brainer that I would go here. Um, and you came by yourself? I came by myself to boarding school. And um, just, yeah, just to study. I didn't really have, even though I grew up in the most wonderful kind of foodie family, I didn't really have, maybe as any teenager, you do have a funny relationship with food when you mm. go through that mm. phase. Um, and then when I came here, now kind of looking back, I realized obviously that kind of stress of homesickness was a huge part to your kind of how you eat and obviously a whole new type of food that I've never had before. So it's been quite difficult. So I wasn't really into food at that stage and um, I found it quite kind of hard to readjust. Uh, but it did make me want to eat my mum's or like, you know, my kind of granny's and my mum's food a lot more. So I remember um, once in school when um, I moved up to six and seventh form when we had our own house on the premises and the little kitchen when we could actually cook yourself. I called my mom said, oh, I need your meatballs and mashed potato recipe. <laughs> that was my first array into cooking myself. That was a dish that signalled kind of comfort. Yeah, yeah. Meatballs and mash sounds good yeah. anyway. Especially if it was in the middle of this kind of weather that we're having mm. at the moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you were at this point 17, yeah, 18. Yeah, so yeah. you were here in the UK at boarding school trying to cook dishes that kind of yeah. elicited this memory of home. yeah. When you tried to cook those dishes that you got the recipes for, yeah, did they actually taste work for you? Did they taste it? Yeah, they didn't taste as good, but there was still that something about it that reminded me of home. I mean, it was nowhere as good as my mom's or my granny's. Uh, we were able to get the ingredients here. Yeah, I think the good thing about Russian cuisine is that it's quite. Uh, simple and the ingredients are so most of it is so accessible so i mean mashed potatoes you know it's just how you make it you know um because in my family my gran uses um lots of butter and she also adds a egg yolk uh, like a raw egg yolk okay. and she like whips it up so it gives it like an extra fluffiness but obviously it cooks because mm. the potatoes are so hot and then like hot milk so it's the creamiest butteriest kind of fluffiest thing i've never heard of egg yolk and mashed potato i'm gonna try that mm. i can imagine it's almost like not like a souffle but it will give it, it really that kind gives of fluffy it some, mm, custody yeah, yeah yeah so it gives it has the most incredible at what point do you put the egg yolk in because um, i quite like to try that <laughs> i I don't have like a specific recipe actually. I think you literally just, um, you know, get your hot potatoes once they're boiled, you just mash them roughly 
And then, um, you add the egg yolk, add it at that point. hot milk, and you just start whipping it. So at the point that you'd put your butter and or butter, your, your yeah. milk in usually for the mashing, yeah. just to add an egg yolk. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to try it. I'm sure if I actually kind of experiment, there might be a better point at which mm. you add it, so it maybe adds even more fluffiness or kind of mm. creaminess to it. But I think it's that kind of creaminess and obviously mm. whips a bit more. But that's a good point. Life-changing. I need to go back to my mashed potato, yeah. In your next book, <laughs> yeah, it's you all can about have that. The perfect mash, yeah. <laughs> so you went on from oh, well, high school, the Australian equivalent. You yeah. went on from high school to uni. Yeah. And did you originally study when you did an undergrad film? Film, yeah. yeah. So, you, so you did film and then you did your master's film, film and, and then you did film. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And topped it up with a PhD in film. I yeah, I obviously love film. <laughs> what did you want to do with that? Um, so when I came to the UK in the beginning to to my uh, boarding school, it had the most amazing kind of arts and theatre and photography department that I never actually had been exposed to before in Russia because the education in Russia is not particularly creative. Um, so I suddenly had this whole new world of photography and theatre and dance and all that. Uh, and I absolutely loved it. Um, I did all my A-levels and all the kind of creative bits. And I was certain that I either want to be a set designer for film and theatre or a film director. So, And then I looked at the fees for like a film school and or uh, St. Martin's and I thought, mm, okay, maybe not. <laughs> um, but I thought, okay, I'll start at a more kind of accessible price point <laughs> with a, uh, just a standard BA in film history and film theory and all of that. And hopefully we'll be able to develop um, into a film director and that never happened. <laughs> but in a funny way, I felt, especially doing the cookbook, I felt like all of those things that I love the most, or even doing the Kino Vino Supper Clubs, you know, set dressing, that's kind of, that's where yeah. my love of t- dressing the tables and the room and, doing the cookbook was absolutely amazing because that really allowed me to channel my kind of inner directing, me making mood boards for the book and all of that kind of stuff. How did the Kino Vino Supper Club come about then? So the Kino Vino, I was doing my PhD um, and it really wasn't something that I wanted to do. I kind of realised, once I've started, I realised that there's absolutely no way I want to be in this academic world, but... Partly because of my visa restrictions, I was still on a student visa, so I couldn't actually quit the course. Partly because I just wouldn't, you know, I just couldn't allow myself to fail and quit. I I had to finish it. And so while I was doing it, it was really kind of a miserable time for me. So that's when I really started cooking and having friends over. And um, I was in a, my partner is South African, so we went to visit his family in Cape Town, which was probably the best trip of my life and we did lots of wine tasting there mm. and I think it's there that when we were tasting like my partner and his parents and his family you know they taste the one like I don't really feel there's a bouquet or whatever but I was like the only one who kind of guessed it right that there's I don't know you can taste the blackberry or the leather or whatever um, and I felt like me and the guy who was doing the you know the guys who were doing the tasting kind of had a nice report going and my partner was like, well, you seem to be really good at like wine tasting and kind of have that extra kind of sense for it that other people around you didn't have. Yeah. Uh, why don't you do something about it? And I said, oh, it'll be fun to like partner or like, you know, pair film because that's the only thing I know really well and wine. And the more we talked about it, um, 
I thought, well, maybe I can do a whole meal around that. So Kino Vino in Russian, Kino is film and Vino is wine. So Kino Vino is essentially that. But um, obviously we'll do more than just wine tasting these days with Kino Vino. Tell us about the first one. You must have been so nervous. What what film did you choose? What did you serve? The first one was really fun, actually. Um, I guess it did help having worked at film, with film festivals as well. And I've put on a lot of film events um, just without the food. I kind of had that, the knowledge and the experience of how to do that. So that was fine. I wasn't nervous about that. The cooking, I was quite nervous, but also excited. And I had a few friends um, helping me to pull it off. So at that point, I didn't have the idea of having a kind of a star guest chef yet. Um, and I chose um, Peter Greenaway's The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover. Of course. Yeah, because why not? Yeah, <laughs> just shocked my guests from the start. <laughs> and we did a very um, kind of traditional British roast. Um, obviously had to serve meat. <laughs> and um, I think it was the colours in the film. They're so deep red and it's the colour, the use of colour is so symbolic and so visceral. And obviously the whole film was very like sexual and visceral. And you know, I'm not going to spoil the end for those who haven't <laughs> seen it. Um, so I thought it definitely has to be red wine and lots of mm. meat and gravy, that kind of, you know, really carnal kind of pleasurable thing. And it was fantastic. It was great. Um, I think a few people were a bit shocked <laughs> when they came out of the screening. Um, but it's, it was fun. The only mistake I've made was not really think through the whole clearing process and who's going to wash up the dishes and all of that. Oh, and the worst bit. Sitting down and eating and drinking and drinking quite a bit. And then when everyone left, I was like, uh-oh, actually, now I have to like... <laughs> I need 10 dishwashers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was me and my partner who ended up doing the dishes until like 3 a.m. Oh, wow. But you've worked that maybe a bit. You've worked that bit out now, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> On the second one, I was like, okay, that's <laughs> learned straight away. What comes first for you? Is it you decide on the film, or you go, you know what? I feel like cooking this sort of thing. Yeah. What's a film that goes with that? Yeah, I think it's um, each event is very different. So initially. I sat down and kind of in my academic mode and I made a list of films that have really amazing food scenes or, you know, have a food as a very important element. And then I started thinking, what chef do I know who could yeah. work well with that? So for the first, maybe, I can't remember exactly how long, but for the first few editions, it was a more kind of planned thing with the film coming first. But then gradually... Um, it became more about, I think the more I moved into the food world and kind of made friends or, you know, connections with more chefs. And now it's a bit more about the chef and the food. And then they find the film that would go with it. Do they ever have any kind of input? Yeah. Yeah. yeah sometimes. I mean, it depends on the, the chef as well. It's, it's a real joy to work with kind of... Um, film buff chefs like my friend Olya Hercules because um, she also has a degree in the arts and culture and we have that shared love of you know, Georgian cinema and stuff so when we did a supper club for her book launch of her second book caucuses um, we both knew what film we want to show was Sergei Parajanov's uh, Color of the Pomegranates um, and you know she watched it as well and got back to me with the most amazing ideas on decor as well and I fed back on her menu so you know it was a really beautiful collaborative process um, other times um it's really the chef and they just lead with the food and they're happy for me to um, create the rest of the elements. So choose the film, do the set dressing and all of that. So it's a really lovely collaborative process and it changes 
individual kind of on an individual basis really it's a really it's really nice that you can actually merge your kind of you know you talked earlier about maybe you'd quite like to have gone into like film set design mm. so you've kind of got that angle covered, yeah, and then yeah you can still kind of nerd out about some really great films but you've also yeah. got the food it's it's the perfect culmination of all like of your is, yeah all of your things yeah it's been such a great creative outlet what's your favorite food movie you can have a top three if it's too hard to just okay, do one. Okay. Um, or scenes, maybe. Scenes, yeah, maybe scenes. One of them that I've actually, that was my last Kinovino event. And that that's a funny one because um, I've studied that film when I was doing my master's degree. It's a German-Turkish film called Head On. And it's about a Turkish diaspora in Hamburg and how this guy kind of is completely lost and he finds his way back to his roots and stuff partly through food and there's this most beautiful scene where his um wife uh, makes um stuffed peppers and the but she plays like the music is kind of like i don't depeche mode or something i don't know it's like a real cool combination of very kind of specific ethnic traditional to something a bit more kind of european and contemporary so she makes those gorgeous stuffed peppers and they're drinking rakia and you know the it's again it's such a sensual fun scene so I was obsessed with that scene and it took me quite a long time to find the right chef and finally I did find the perfect chef to do it and we did the um that event uh last month which was quite fun so who was the chef that you had for that? the chef uh, she's called Malik Erdal um she's a Kurdish chef who was born in Istanbul but she grew up in Hackney so it's such a cool combination again yeah. of her identity which I felt really resonated with the film uh we didn't have the stuffed peppers but she had a an even more interesting dish, which is very traditional Istanbul dish. Um, it's the stuffed um, mussels. So it's essentially yummy. the same herbs and spices and rice, but they're actually cooked with mussels. Mm, that it's, sounds really good. Oh, it's beautiful. And it's a real kind of um, traditional dish of Istanbul. So it was perfect. Um, so that that's one of my just top favorite films in general. Uh, and then, of course, Babette's Feast. Um kind of every scene there well of course the feast itself is absolutely amazing but i think for me is that scene that comes after the feast i don't know if you've seen the film or um we'll be watching it tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's probably the most kind of the food film um and it's about a french chef who escapes the french revolution and she settles in a small town in denmark where it's a very austere community, you know, they're highly religious, they all wear grey, and obviously no carnal pleasures are allowed, so food is being part of them. They eat very dull porridge and just rye bread and all of that. <laughs> exactly. And then this chef comes into their lives. Uh, but at this point, we don't know if she's that famous chef. And, and they've been very kind to her, and they've welcomed her and all of that. And then I think she stays with them for 10 years, keeping her insane skills as a chef as a secret. And then... At the end of it, she said, I want to um, host a feast to thank uh, all the villagers and everyone who welcomed me so well. And then she hosts this mind-blowing feast that, you know, she has the most expensive champagne and, and it's a five-course meal. And it's the most beautiful scene how you see all those people who have been very austere, you know, they pray all the time and they don't eat much. And suddenly they open up. And the most beautiful personalities come out as they get merry and drunk and all, you know, kind of old, whatever issues they've had, they're forgiven. And and then at the end, she opens up and she says, I am that wonderful chef who's... And it's like, that gives me goosebumps when I'm talking about it. It's just the most beautiful moving scene. And it's that power of food that really um, kind of comes out. And it, it's a very funny scene, but it also kind of just makes... Yeah, it's kind of the essence of Kinovina for me as well, kind of how... 
when you sit down with strangers or you know people you don't know that well uh, food has that magical thing to transform it kind of grounds everybody grounds to the same everything. level yeah exactly and you've, yeah. You're, you've got a smile from ear to ear at the yeah, yeah i know it's crazy isn't it, it? So that's really and lovely. then the third one it's not kind of highbrow at all, but it's ratatouille. And that yes. scene where the critic has the ratatouille and he remembers himself as a kid, that just going to make me cry now because <laughs> it's just so moving and it's so true, isn't it? And that's like, that's also like the essence of food for me. Yeah. That kind of, it's amazing how it's so connected to our childhood, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's why we always start with what is your first yeah, food memory of Yeah, it's a great What question. is your first food memory of food? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's such a nice opener because everyone's story is different and yet mm. they're all the same mm. it, it it's just such a lovely place to start and it always yeah. sets the i'm showing off here it always sets us off on the right track because people are immediately thinking of that thing the that kind of maybe thing. first yeah. sparked their interest or a memory with family and yeah it it's it's exactly like that like yeah that. we have to keep going and there's so much that we want to talk to you about so we really want to talk to you about Salt and Time, your new cookbook, which is absolutely beautiful, by the way. Thank you. I'm hoping to get a, my hands on a copy later on before we go. You've had some amazing responses to this book. So Nigella said that it was thrillingly imbued with the majesty of the Russian soul. Nigella writes beautifully, say, but it, that is a stunning piece of <laughs> yeah. critique. Um, she also called it a book whose food is evocative, not merely of a place, but of a yearning for a place, which I love. Yeah. Oh, I'm all goosebumpy. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> fantastic. For your first cookbook yeah. to have those kind of things said is stunning. Yeah. So for someone picking up your book for the first time with little or no knowledge of Russian and Siberian food, where should they start? Because, I mean, Siberian food is not something that, obviously, as you know, it's not mm. it's not a well-known cuisine. You just no. duck down the road to the Siberian restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess there's, there'll be a lot of people who go, what what does What's that even, even mean? What even is that? Yeah. yeah. It's an interesting question. And in a way, Siberian is obviously something that I grew up with eating and because I happen to have been born in Siberia. And it's a complex mix of... Um, there are certain very specific regional dishes, but at the same time, some of them have become almost universal across the former Soviet Union, like the Siberian dumplings called pilmeni. Everyone eats them, but the origin is in Siberia. Um, there are certain dishes which belong to the indigenous population, like a dish called straganina, that's a um, raw shaved, um, frozen fish that's shaved into very beautiful thin slices that kind of curl really elegantly. And then you just have it with some salt and vinegar and um, you know, any condiment you really want, like horseradish cream or... I can't think of anything else, but it's in the book. <laughs> um, and then it's usually had like with a shot of vodka, so it's such a beautiful kind of little welcome nibble. Like an appetizer yeah, to exactly. get your palate going. Exactly, yeah. Um, it can also be meat or deer is also eaten the same way, so it's raw frozen shavings of meat, and again they're eaten with like lovely condiments. So that's very typical of Siberia, very regional. But at the same time, the book has dishes that... We all grew up eating as having had that kind of unique experience of living in the former Soviet Union. So there's a lot of kind of uniform dishes, but all of them, or most of them, I treat, I take a bit of creative license and I 
make them more accessible for a English speaking or you know kind of European I guess population or people living in the UK um, so it's a bit of a mix it's very hard to say exactly what it is but it's more of an exploration and hopefully people will get a very interesting kind of a, quite a wide range of different dishes and see kind of how varied Russian and Siberian cuisine really is What's your favourite dish from the book? Mm. You, if I said to you, I, I've only got one ta- one ta- uh, one chance to cook from your book. What should I make? Yeah. Oh, I guess it would be a, a recipe for a bigos, which is actually initially a Polish recipe, um, and it's a stew of a sauerkraut with um, mushrooms um, and traditionally it's made with pork but I actually make my vegetarian but I add really lovely smoky garlicky croutons to kind of counterbalance the lack of pork and then it's served with smashed new potatoes with lots of dill and garlic and sun and unrefined sunflower oil and it's it's very simple it's vegan actually it's very basic but the sauerkraut is such an amazing thing to cook with mm. it's like it couldn't be more simple, really. But the complexity of the flavor that it brings to every dish is just almost indescribable. And then the mushroom, obviously, the wild mushrooms have mm. insanely good scent and flavor. Mm. And the whole garlicky dill potato number—that's just like sometimes me and my partner just eat it standing that's in the kitchen from the yeah, oh, absolutely same from the tray. It doesn't even make it to the table and the plate. <laughs> it's just <laughs> so good and crunchy and oh, amazing, you yeah. know. What did you enjoy most about writing the book? Um, was it the memories for you? Was it? I think it was that having had um, not the most pleasant. Ex- well, I don't want to sound too negative about my PhD because it was a really important experience in my life that taught me so much. One thing taught me how to write and kind of think logically and of structure of thought coherently but at the same time I've struggled with the format a lot so there was very little creative thinking that was allowed um, so the fact that I could just sit down and literally just write whatever felt right for me and whatever felt important and be playful or you know kind of find my voice really because writing an academic text it's very hard to find your voice doing that it's very dry it's very dry, yeah. It must have been quite liberating, actually, to have spent, you know, going from your BA all the way through to a PhD, mm. writing in a very yeah. formulaic, yeah. academic way, to suddenly writing about yeah. recipes and yeah. food. It, it, yeah. it must have been a bit of a shock, almost, to yeah. go from one extreme to the other. Yeah. I mean, I um, I started having a little food blog. Uh, when I started the Kinovino Supper Club, I started the website straight away, <laughs> And then obviously Instagram. Um, so that was a really amazing lesson to just kind of lose that. Because I did struggle to find this new voice. How do I express myself without being too formal and too kind of constructed? So I think doing the blog and the Instagram posts really helped me to find my voice. But obviously the book was the ultimate expression of that and the ultimate kind of moment when I could do that. So I remember just sitting there thinking, okay, I've got this recipe. What story shall I tell about it? And it just, all of it came so naturally. There was no writer's block. There was nothing of like, oh, that doesn't sound right. Or You know, obviously I did edit it and mm. stuff. But that initial, just the first draft came 
out in the most beautiful, fun way. Mm. So I think writing actually still was the most amazing part. It's all that pent-up creativity, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. What was the hardest part? Oh, um, the hardest part. I think, well, I guess that first initial draft that I wrote, because I was just almost, you know, just expressing myself as if I was chatting to a friend, and then getting the editor's feedback, which was really good and I've had you know I've had my text edited before and sometimes when it's just like bleeding red it's so heartbreaking <laughs> mm. you know that text came back with almost you know not many comments but a lot of them were kind of having to explain what things were and suddenly I was like oh yeah I kept talking as if people kind of assuming that everyone knows what I mean and then just kind of having to re kind of think of the recipes from an outsider's perspective and something that's so personal to me and my memories and kind of funny stories that my family shares, I suddenly had to kind of step back and think, is it really funny? Actually, I think it's funny, but maybe you <laughs> know, one of those people... had to be there kind of moments. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that was a bit hard kind of taking a step back on the second draft and really taking some things out, which were maybe a bit too personal, a bit too colloquial and finding that kind of mid ground of still retaining my voice and my kind of real me in it, but making it a bit more, accessible and a bit more kind of mar marketable, I guess, yeah. We're rapidly running out of time, okay. which is always the case because <laughs> yeah. we could talk to you all day. Um, very quickly, we haven't really talked about how yeah. you fit your family life into yeah. into everything that you're doing. Yeah. Um, so you have a young daughter mm. and you um, have a, a kind of a, a, a community, I guess, called yeah. EMA yeah. Um, in London where you kind of combine motherhood and being a creative, yeah. strong woman. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's been a real... Um, last year was quite a special one for me, um, releasing my debut cookbook and then having a baby. Um, it was really special doing the book when I was while I was pregnant because there are a few pictures of me in the book with a bump and, you know, that whole journey was magical. But then finally kind of a, both of them were out <laughs> quite literally <laughs> yeah and then that kind of real hard reality suddenly was like oh my god this is actually a lot harder than I imagined and it's been difficult um but at the same time it kind of allowed me to keep a balance of both I think if I had only one or the other it would have been probably even more overwhelming that I would have you know stress out about the book so much or maybe I would feel a bit lonely at home not having a social or creative outlet um, but still, it does feel quite isolating and a bit you're kind of shell-shocked and it's suddenly you, but you're not the same. You know, it's a very weird mm. thing to come to terms with and to embrace. And just chatting to one of my... I've um, met this woman who was also pregnant at the same time. Um, she does PR for restaurants and um, we're just kind of chatting about being freelancers in food or creative industries. And it does feel I mean I'm sure women who have a permanent job and they on maternity leave have their own anxieties and concerns they might want to voice more but it kind of from my perspective it feels a lot more secure that you know you're coming back to your next job you know mm. when it's happening and you have the security of a maternity of a paid maternity leave whereas for us it's very different so we just felt like we need to create some kind of a community for women to really educate as well as um, give a uh, really beautiful kind of cozy environment where they can share their experiences so our plan is to create again it's all 
most of it is centered around food to create lovely um, brunch experiences. I'm kind of bringing a bit of Kino Vino into that because I haven't been able to enjoy late evening dinners for quite a while now. So I miss that sense of sitting down at the table, having just one drink because I can't really drink more these days. <laughs> um, and But also have um, a bit of a educational element. So we would have uh, speakers, also inspiring mums, most of them who are freelancers and um, kind of specialists in their field from baby weaning to finding a career after you've had a baby um so but it's a real supportive it is a supportive and empowering community yeah, in a way yeah. because you're not only giving people a space to to speak to adults and yeah. socialize on that level but you're also kind of giving them skills i guess yeah yeah so that's that's our plan and um, we initially got very excited about it and I think it was another great lesson that um, suddenly my... I mean, I've been blessed with such a calm, happy baby. So I think that made my life a lot easier. I mean, doing all the festivals and stuff, if you have a very difficult child, then that's mm. just out of the window. It's not, it's not possible physically to do it. So luckily, she's been very cooperative. But still, you know, she goes through her phases when she's teething. And bless her, she can't help it. So recently, I've faced this new kind of stage for the last month and a half. She's been a lot more difficult. She's teething and she's struggling. So I've struggled to kind of remember my own name in some days, you know, lack of sleep, back to kind of that level of, you know, tiredness of like newborn stage when I thought I was well past it and it's all good and it's all settled. So that was a great lesson that you kind of, with a baby, you always kind of need to be on your toes and be prepared for the kind of unexpected stuff. So both of us and um, my co-founder, her baby also has gone through some other phase, even though they're a different age, but... So we kind of suddenly found ourselves we just don't have the time or mental space to put as much energy into it as we were. So the moment has been paused a little bit, which is, yeah, which is quite interesting that you just constantly need to readjust and just go with what you can at the moment. And That's I think real it's, life. <laughs> yeah, it's a great lesson. You even if you're pragmatic. not a mom, it's a perfect lesson to just <laughs> embrace it and go with the unexpected final question we don't want it to be the final question but we have to end somewhere <laughs> what's next i have lots of plans and ideas um it all depends on how my baby is doing and how we're doing as a family because obviously this was a priority right now but i loved doing the book doing the cookbook was an absolute dream come true and the whole creative process of photography and locations and styling was just oh, amazing so i really want to do more of that um so i do have some ideas and kind of a few drafts in my on my computer with recipes that i keep putting into it and it's still kind of floating about but um there's no kind of a coherent book proposal yet, but definitely there's hope for and plan for a more writing and more cookbook. We'll keep our eyes out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and potentially some film stuff as well, but food film, obviously. Um, that but, sounds very exciting. Yeah, but we'll see how, how that goes as well. <laughs> brilliant. Thank you so much, Luther. It's been brilliant talking oh, to you. Thank you. I loved it. If you enjoyed this episode, you'll no doubt like some of our others, so please do take the time to listen to our back catalogue, which you can find on any podcast platform you use, or our website, at thesource.com. If you really enjoyed it, consider supporting us through Patreon. In return for helping us make the podcast even better, we're offering special behind-the-scenes recordings and more. Take a look at patreon.com slash thesource for more information. Lastly, we're on Twitter and Instagram as at thesource. We're sharing visuals and talking food. Come and join us. <laughs>